Um, the reading this morning comes from 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 3. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we know that we know him if we keep his commands. The word of the Lord. No grasses and no flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. It's all right. (laughs) It takes a lot to get up here and read the word before everybody, because you are pretty self-conscious, so... Sometimes, not Kendall, she was fine. Other people. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, even though the things around us do wither away, um, those things we trust in, those things we hope in, um, that your word never does, and that it's true. And, um, and so we uh, believe that today um, as, as believers, as the church. And so we pray that you would open our eyes. Um, in ears to behold and to hear uh, these wonderful truths from your word. And I pray for my friends here today uh, who have yet to come to know Christ, that they are still asking questions and wrestling with doubts. And um, uh, they're welcome here. We're, we're th- I'm thankful they're here. And I pray that you would uh, use your word to speak to them as well this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1957, Martin Luther King uh, poetically said in a sermon that he gave on loving your enemy. He said these words. You're probably familiar with them. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So Dr. King's nonviolent protest against the, the hatred uh, of, of people of color was a radical act in his day, and it's one that got him a lot of pushback, even from those uh, involved in the same kind of advocacy, and even those who uh, were in the church as well. But what we see in this famous quote is something that uh, Dr. King understood biblically. And that was the contrast between darkness and light. So he's saying to return evil for evil or hate for hate will will never do any good and would actually be counterintuitive to what the civil rights protests were seeking to accomplish. 
So King recognized that, that the only thing that drives out darkness is not more darkness. It's light. So you know this yourself. Even, even the smallest pinprick of light sends darkness fleeing, and the brighter the light is, the less darkness we see. So John says of Jesus in the fourth gospel, in the gospel of John, he says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And it never will. And so John continues this theme in the outset of this uh, passage we're reading this morning when he says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Or I like the way Kindle's translation was, there is absolutely no darkness in him. So using this as his foundation, John sets out to both confront these false teachers who are, who are trying to infiltrate the church and teach bad doctrine, but he's also seeking to assure the church of its firm, stable trust in the light of Christ. And he does this by walking through three what-if statements that are found in the passage and they, they have both a, a negative edge to them, but also a positive pursuit. And these are in your handout if you picked one of those up. But these are the three statements that he makes. One is walking in darkness versus walking in the light. Two is claiming to be without sin versus confessing your sin. And then three is claiming to not have sin versus resting in the righteous one, who is Jesus. So first, walking in darkness versus walking in the light. Look at verses 5 through 7 again. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, so the message John is pointing to here is simply, God is light. It's part one of his letter that he elaborates on until chapter 3, verse 10. You'll hear him refer back to this truth about who God is over and over again in these next three chapters. And this is an important feature because the errors of the false teachers was due to their ignorance on this very fact about God's being. They did not see God as light. Because if they did, there's, there's no way they could ever lay claim to the belief system that they propose if they understood the conception of God being light. And the sheer fact that, that darkness cannot exist in, its pre in His presence. So this is why Satan was cast out of heaven, evil equating itself to darkness. This is why Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden when they sinned, because darkness cannot be in the presence of light. And so sin represents, dark, or darkness represents sin, and it cannot stand in God's presence who represents light. So the description of light is used in a couple of different ways uh, in the scriptures. The one way that it's used is intellectually, and the second way it's used is morally. So used intellectually, it communicates that light is truth, and darkness is ignorance 
an error. Used morally, it communicates that light is purity and darkness is evil. So when you see that taking place throughout the scriptures, you see it in places like Psalm 1, where he is contrasting between uh, the righteous man and the evil one. Those who walk in the way of the wicked in darkness versus those who meditate on God's words, those who are pursuing righteousness, those who are walking in the light. Now, in its uses in Scripture, light is not just to make people to see, but enable them to walk rightly. So there is, there is a moral content to light as, as well as a knowledge-based understanding that have to go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin, we could say. So in other words, to know the truth of the gospel is to do the truth of the gospel as well. We are not only to see the light, but we are to walk in the light. We're not just to acknowledge and say, there's some light over there. We are actually to walk in to that light. So for one to say, I know God, or I know Jesus, or I like going to church on Sunday, uh, yet they continue to walk in their sin, which is the darkness that John is implying here, is a liar. And does not practice the truth. They do not walk in the light for as much as they say they do. So we see here in verse 6 that there can be a difference between what we say and what we do. So John says, if we say, we proclaim, we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So I'm sure all of us know someone who says they are a Christian, but at the same time you look at their life and you say, well, your life doesn't reflect Christianity very well. Actually, your life doesn't reflect Christianity at all. And this also may be you. You say, I believe in God, or you say, I love Jesus, but your life is far from these words. And you may need to take a strong look at your life to see whether or not you are actually walking in the truth, that you are actually walking in the light. Because you cannot walk in the light and at the same time walk in darkness. It's impossible. We cannot say, I I believe the gospel, yet walk in the opposite way of the gospel. That's impossible. So this is the way you live your life. Your your words and your actions are a lie. And and to think otherwise, to think uh, you are a a Christian or someone who who is following after Jesus and, and your life does not reflect that, to think otherwise is an illusion that you have created in your own mind. I mean, scientifically, it is impossible for light and darkness to exist together. All the lights are on in this room. There is no darkness around us. It cannot escape the light. So this is true spiritually as well, which is why Paul asks in in 1 Corinthians 6.14, he says, uh, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And the answer to that question is none whatsoever. None. So what does it mean to walk in darkness? Well, the word walk here means to progress in something. 
So, so to walk in darkness means you are progressing in darkness. It means you are actually getting better and better at walking in darkness. You're becoming a professional at walking in darkness. You're able to, to fake people out and to make them see things that, that, that you don't want them to see or, 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 or making them assume that you're something that you're not. You are progressing in darkness. So instead of walking in the, in the light, you are actually walking away from the light. You progress in a different direction. So the end, of the, the end of verse 6 says of those who walk in darkness, they are liars and they do not practice the truth. Now this last bit can be translated as they do not do the truth instead of practice. They do not do the truth. So they claim to know the truth, yet their lives tell us otherwise. So they lie about who they are. And how prevalent this still is in our culture, particularly the culture of the church. We are not exempt from this. As people proclaim belief, yet their lives look nothing like what they proclaim. Some of you may have been even hurt by people like that within the church, where they are saying one thing, but their lives reflect something totally different. And so when you get old enough and and wiser enough to understand, you say, that is not the type of Christianity that I want. I want something real, not something fake. And if that's Christianity, that's not what I want. But maybe you are this type of person. And I'll give you a terrifying application exercise to discern this. Ask the people closest to you. So if you're married, ask your spouse if they'll be honest with you. If if you have kids, ask your kids. Your kids will be honest with you. So just so you know. Um, Maybe it's, it's a close friend uh, that you have that, that you know that, will, that can prick your heart in this way. Or, or maybe even asking a non-Christian friend who is either a classmate or a co-worker or somebody you see at the gym and ask them. It, it, it'll be a weird question, I know. Preface it. Say, this is going to be a weird question, I know. But I just need you to, I need you to, to answer this for me as best as you can. If If by your lifestyle and speech, the way you live your life and the way that you talk, can they tell that you are a Christian? Can they tell that you're a Christian? Now, this I'm not just saying just someone who goes to church on Sunday. Okay, There's lots of lost people who go to church every Sunday. I'm saying, can they tell that you are living out the gospel in that sphere of life that is not on a Sunday, not on a Wednesday at your missional community or any other Bible study that you're at, are you, are you publicly displaying the gospel through the way that you live and in the way that you speak? I'm going to do the exercise too. So I'll be asking for testimony next week. Just kidding. I'm not... But truly, it, what, you, what you should be asking is... is, is do I look different? Uh, does your life uh, uh, look like it is being compelled by the power of a greater affection? Or does it look just like everybody else around you? Your, your affections are your money and your bank account or uh, 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 getting a raise and, and moving up in your job or whatever it might be. Or are you compelled by the power of a greater affection? The gospel. Even if they can't explain it. 
You can ask that question of them. Now, in contrast to verse 6, John affirms a complementary truth that, that also acts as a test as well to see whether or not you're walking in the light. And this is what John says. He says, if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. So, so John is saying, if we walk in the light, there are two consequences that are true of us. The first consequence is we have fellowship with one another, meaning we have fellowship with those in the church. That is our community. And then the second consequence is the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So first, the first consequence, fellowship with one another. So since John is writing to to churches, we can only assume that he means fellowship within those churches amongst its uh, members. So John has already used this word fellowship uh, three other times since beginning his letter. This is the fourth time he's using it. But back in verse 3, he is speaking to the churches about the fellowship that the churches have with him. We have fellowship together as pastor and church, personally. And, and the fellowship that all of them have with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And this, this type of fellowship that he's speaking about here in verse 3 is in opposition to having fellowship with the world, specifically fellowship with false teachers. So in verse 6, John uses this word to point out hypocrisy. If we, if we say we have fellowship with the Father and we have fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth, actually. So the word fellowship in the Bible is probably one that you have heard in Greek. Uh, it's, it's the word koinonia, which means to, to hold something in common with others. To hold something in common with others. And it's used about 20 times specifically in the New Testament. Uh, Paul uses it, John uses it throughout his his letters as well to to remind uh, the church they have have fellowship with one another and what that looks like. So I read an article this week that used a quote uh, by the reformer Philip Melanchthon. Uh, And Philip Melanchthon was uh, Martin Luther's protege, not Martin Luther King Jr. I I know that can be confusing. Martin Luther was, was the first Martin Luther way back when, okay? And then came Martin Luther King later. But So Philip Melanchthon was Martin Luther's protege. He was kind of his disciple. And this is how he, he defined Christian fellowship. He says, in essentials, unity. In, in non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. So in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, uh, liberty. In all things, cl- uh, charity. So, so we are unified on those things that are set in stone for us by God's word. Those are things that are never going to change, mainly the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's never going to change. How, what we, how we think about the very word of God, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. That will never change. And so we have unity around those particular things. We show liberty in areas that are more open-handed. So uh, we practice the Lord's Supper a certain way. We do it every single week. So you may have come from a church tradition or another church that doesn't do that. That doesn't mean they are 
biblical. Well, it might be a little bit, but that's just my opinion. But we can, we can have, chair, we can have uh, uh, liberty there within that. Uh, kids in the services, or, or not to have kids in the services. We can have liberty there. Uh, how we practice the Sabbath day and, and things like that. Those are more open-handed, and we can have liberty and show grace towards each other in those particular things. And then in all things, charity or grace. So in all things, political parties. Democrats are welcome here. And that may surprise some people. In parenting styles, we have many different parenting styles. Um, we have uh, different views on drinking alcohol and things like that. But in all things, we are to give charity to one another. And that's what unity is. That's what Christian unity is about. And so when we are living in the light of God, we will have this sort of fellowship with those within the church. So the test is, whether or not you have true fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if your Christian fellowship is broken with those God has placed you in covenant with, take note of that. Sin is the culprit. There's no other reason for it except your sin or that other person's sin. So this is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that if you are offering a gift at the altar, so we could say if you're giving God a gift, if, you are, if you're going to, uh, we could say, the church and we are worshiping on a Sunday, um, and then you remember that you are not right with your brother or sister, Jesus says you need to leave your gift, no matter how big or large it may be or how important it may be, you need to leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. So your, your conflict with your brother or sister, Jesus is saying, will hinder your worship. And therefore, you must go and be reconciled to them. But sadly, this is not common practice within churches. Um, most would rather leave that church than be reconciled to that brother or to that sister. But within the church, we are called to push into the messiness of other people's lives and allowing people into our messy lives. And we all have messy lives. And we, and we can do this because we know we all hold the same truth, that we have unity around these certain truths, which John speaks about as another consequence of walking in the light, and that is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. As one commentator said, there is, there is not real fellowship with God that is not expressed in fellowship with other believers. So the blood of Jesus makes us right with God, yes, and we like that part, but the blood of Jesus also makes us right with one another. It puts us on an equal playing field. Nobody is, is higher than another person in this room. The blood of Jesus levels us. So the truth is, is what brings us into fellowship with one another. And this truth is what makes the Christian community, the church, sweet to be a part of. But also makes it pretty radical and countercultural. So that's the first contrast. The second contrast John uses is claiming to be without sin versus 
confessing our sin. Look at verses 8 through 9. John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in verse 2, or in these two verses, we have the second claim of the false teachers, and that is the claim to be without sin. So the Greek literally says there, the original language in which the New Testament was written, the Greek literally says, we do not have sin. Just very plainly, we do not have sin. And this was a bold claim to make that whatever their outward actions may say about them, they said there was no inherent sin in their very nature since coming to know God. Now, just to give you a, 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 a theology of sin lesson here, okay? This will take place for the rest of the time. But we know that's not possible because the Bible tells us it's not possible. Because all we need to do is, is look back at where it all began in Genesis chapter 3. And it's here that we, that we talk about in Genesis 3 about the doctrine of original sin. So let me just illustrate this for you so we can nerd out here a little bit with Lord of the Rings. Some of you just woke up. So in the first Lord of the Rings movie, and just side note, the books are way better. Okay? Just they're way better. But in the first Lord of the Rings movie, uh, Aragorn, who is one of the main characters, is, is fearful of the, of the ring's power. And he was fearful that, that the ring could have uh, power over him because his ancestor was affected by it. His ancestor, Ilsador, and he was affected by it, and it killed him. It brought him to ruin. And so Arwen says to Aragorn, Why do you fear the past? You are Ilsader's heir, not Ilsader himself. You are not bound to his fates. To which Aragorn wisely responds, The same blood flows in my veins, the same weakness. So these words spoken by Aragorn are quite perceptive when you apply them to the, the doctrine of original sin. Because we could say, while we're not Adam and Eve themselves, we're not, we're not them we also have to say, but the same blood and the same weakness still flows through our veins as well. So in describing original sin, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 18, asks this question, what is sinful about man's fallen condition? And then answers this way. The sinfulness of that fallen condition is twofold. First, in what is commonly called original sin, there is the guilt of Adam's first sin with its lack of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature. Second are all the specific acts of disobedience that come from original sin. So what this means is Adam sinned totally and completely. Genesis chapter 3, you can look, look back at that. And then we all inherit his sinful nature. Another way you could say it theologically is Adam's sin was imputed to us. It was given to us. So Psalm 51.5, King David describes it this way. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
in sin, another way to say sin, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So this means we are formed in our mother's womb as sinners and stand guilty before God the moment we are conceived. Every one of us. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So what this also means is that whether or not you are a Christian, you still have this sin nature dwelling within you. And because of this, we still give in to this nature and we sin. This is why John says in in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Because to say that you are without sin is to say that you don't need Jesus to save you. To say that you are without sin is saying you don't need a Savior. So then in verse 9, John gives us the Christ-centered, God-honoring response to sin. So rather than deny it exists in your life, John says we confess our sins. We confess our sins. The proper attitude towards your sin is not to deny it or to, or to try to believe it out of existence, but to confess it and then receive the forgiveness that God has promised for you and made possible for you in Christ. This is why we have a corporate confession of sin each week. Uh, and that might, that might be weird to you, or you may have not practiced that in, in other churches or anything like that. But we do this not to drown you in the sorrow uh, and, and the guilt of your sin. We don't do it for that reason. But it's to give you space to confess sin and receive God's forgiveness. Because if you're not confessing sin throughout the week, and this is the only time you do it, which is a good place to do it, don't get me wrong, but if you're not confessing sin throughout the week, you are kind of um, saying kind of quietly to yourself, I'm not really that bad of a sinner. I, I don't really do the bad things that other people do in our culture and around the world. And so I don't need to confess. But then you get here, and then you read these old, the, these old prayers that we pray together, which were written by uh, godly men and women, and you think, man, I am way worse than I think. But then we're reminded very quickly, that's why we have an assurance of the gospel right after confession of sin. We're reminded that Jesus forgives us, that we have way more grace than we will ever deserve, that outweighs our sin. So it's to remind us that you are forgiven, truly. I don't care what you did last night. God forgives you of that sin in Christ. This is why John is confident when he says, if we confess our sins, assuming there in his if that some of us don't, but he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, every bit of it. And then says, now live in light of this forgiveness. So that's the second contrast. The final contrast John uses in our text is claiming to not have sinned versus resting in the righteous one. 
So look at verse, uh, or chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 2. John writes, if we, ha- if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, make God a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So in, in those verses, we see... First off, we see this this final heretical claim prompted by the words, if we say we have not sinned. So John is pointing this out to these false teachers. If we say we have not sinned, like these false teachers have been doing. So the first thing we have to recognize is that John is not merely repeating himself, but rather building upon his teaching about sin. He is giving a good thorough theology of sin to his readers. He's seeking to give a a more comprehensive understanding of of sin's intricacies. So in verse 8, he is dealing with the nature of sin. So because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, sin is embedded deep within us from the moment we are conceived. But here in verse 10, John tells his readers that sin is not only working within us, but that it works its ugliness to the surface and then out into the world and then having its effect on everyone and everything around us. So to say, your sin doesn't just affect you, but it affects everything and everyone that is close to you. And yet this is exactly what the false teachers deny that they do. They believe they are thoroughly sinless. And this is the most explicit claim they have made so far. Because, because to confess or profess that you are sinless without sin, John says, accuses God of lying, and the word of God is then not in them. Since it's the word of God that declares, to, to, declares sin to be universal, and the word of the gospel clearly assumes the sinfulness of all humanity, otherwise Jesus did not have to come. If the, if the law was proficient, if we could just follow the law, follow the rules, Jesus did not have to come. But he did. Paul says in Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, meaning no one is exempt from sin except the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And now John turns his attention to the church in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, as he addresses them with with the tenderness and care of a pastor. He's not degrading them by calling them little children. He's calling them little children because he cares for them as children. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So essentially communicating that that while it is wrong to say one has reached some some sort of uh, sinless euphoria here on earth, Avoiding sin is something we should be doing as we walk in light of the gospel. As we draw near to God, we should be avoiding sin. And so John recognizes that while the Christian should avoid sin, he knows, he's a pastor, he knows because the word is in him that people will sin, which is why he says, but if anyone does sin, 
it, it's a very pastoral moment right there, and this very, very, a very short pastoral moment because John knows his people, and he's looking out at them or thinking about them in his, in his mind's eye and thinking, but I know there's some out there that have sinned. And they feel guilty over that sin. And it is wrecking their heart even as we speak here today in this room. And so John recognizes that. And I recognize that as well. Uh, We shouldn't sin. But if we do sin. I like John Stott, uh, his commentary here on these two statements. uh, So that you may not sin. And but if anyone does sin. He writes this. Quote, it is important to hold these two statements in balance. It is possible to be too lenient or too severe towards sin. Too great a a lenience almost encourages sin in the Christian by stressing God's provision for sinners. So example, sin is not that big of a deal because God forgives me, right? So I can sin all I want. That's leniency. On the other hand, an exaggerated severity either denies the possibility of a Christian sinning of refusing him forgiveness and restoration if he falls. So you're saying the severity of that is to say, if you sin, God will never forgive you. So you have license, and then you have the more severe. So both of these extremes are contradicted by John in chapter 2, verse 1. Avoid sin, but if you do sin, and you will, run to Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is our advocate before the Father. And verse 2 goes further and says that Christ fulfills this, his role of advocacy because he is the propitiation for our sins. Our sins have been paid for at the cross. Justice has been ensued, and we are reconciled to the Father, to the Holy One. We are walking in his light. So, so we aren't working for our right standing before God. That's impossible. You can't do that. Rather, we work because we have a right standing before God. I don't don't love my neighbor because of anything good in me. I love my neighbor because Christ loved me first by giving his life for me. I pursue God in his word and prayer, not, uh, not to appear pious before people, but because God promises that when I do that, he will draw close as I draw close. So the hymn writer, if you know him, William Cooper, you probably know his work. Um, But one hymn that comes to my mind anytime I read these verses is, There is a fountain filled with blood. Now that that song title sounds bizarre if you are unfamiliar with the imagery there um, that he's bringing forth. But but what what Cooper was trying to communicate, and and William Cooper was uh, was a man who was uh, deeply talented, a deeply talented writer and poet, but he struggled also uh, with depression, his entire severe depression, his entire life, to the point that he was he uh, many a suicide attempts was William Cooper. But he wrote these beautiful hymns, and 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 so he he wrote he he wrote these hymns, and he wrote this hymn in particular to communicate the overwhelming abundance of the grace and mercy of Christ to those who, admittedly so, don't have it all together to those who sin, to those who break God's commandments, and yet, still, a continuous stream that is continuously flowing that declares that we are saved from our sin in Christ. But also, as the hymn says, 
saved to sin no more. And only because of what Christ has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fountain that is filled with blood, with the blood of Christ that covers all of our sins. Help us as your people to live in light of our forgiveness that we have in Christ. Help those who have yet to trust you know the cleansing power of your blood, that they would stop uh, seeking to, to become right before you with their works and the things they do, the things they say and that they would experience your forgiveness that you offer as a free gift to them in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.